From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. Palestinian-American journalist Laura Albas says the media must stop giving rein to Israeli aggression and begin telling the full story of Palestine. Recently, Ms. Albas and Kat Nahr co-authored an opinion piece in the Washington Post on the biased and inaccurate coverage of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. They write, quote, We have seen the same patterns over and over again in media coverage of Palestine. Palestinians are not killed. We simply die. When Israeli forces raid our neighborhoods in the middle of the night, bomb our children, demolish our homes, colonize our land, and kill our people, we are somehow equal instigators. Media descriptions regularly imply a false symmetry between occupier and occupied, popping up anti-Palestinian and Islamophobic narrative that blame the Palestinian people for Israeli aggression. End of quote. I spoke with Laura Albast about media coverage of Palestine in the U.S., and why the media fails to cover Palestine with accuracy and empathy. Inaccurate coverage about the Israeli occupation of Palestine has always been inaccurate and biased. Palestinians and organizations have called it out many times. There are passive headlines, incomplete reporting, ignorance in some areas. So it's been pointed out. And for example, at the Institute for Palestine Studies, where I work, we do run a biased beat called the Press on Palestine, which looks at three American major newspapers each month and critiques what they got wrong. It just happened that this time around, I had some clarity of mind a couple of weeks back um, when my co-author Kat Nar approached me with a suggestion to co-write. I also noticed that there has been a lot of increased coverage when the war in Ukraine began. Uh, and that coverage was surprisingly starkly different and upholded more journalistic standards and integrity than coverage on Palestine, which didn't make sense because if you replace the word Ukrainian in each of these articles with Palestinian, you would ha- hardly notice a difference in the reality. Give us some examples. There's a few things that you notice right away that are consistent over the years. Number one, both sides narrative. Trying to put the Israeli military apparatus on an equal footing to the Palestinian people who are occupied. Using tensions and clashes and escalation as if this is, again, an equal footing between the Israeli military apparatus and the Palestinians. It also denies a lot of facts. When you say Palestinians clashed with police, when the actual context is Palestinian worshippers were at the mosque at dawn praying and police attacked the mosque, that's obviously not a planned attack by Palestinians. Uh, This is the second thing. The third thing is missing Palestinian voices from almost every single article that exists out there in Western media, which doesn't make sense to me because logically... In journalism school, as a journalist, you must challenge official narratives. So when we see consistent quotes by Israeli military officials, the Israeli government, and a lack of any type of Palestinian voice, that is extremely concerning. So for people who did not follow the recent events in Palestine, especially in the occupied Jerusalem, the attack on Palestinian worshippers, Can you uh, remind us what happened? 
Ramadan had concluded last month and throughout the holy month of Ramadan that Muslims celebrate every year, Israeli forces attack Palestinians at least three times at the mosque, at Al-Aqsa Mosque. They detained more than 300 and wounded 170 using tear gas, coated rubber uh, steel bullets, and they beat Palestinians. The first incident that was widely reported on was April 15 at dawn when worshippers were at the mosque and we saw footage of Israeli police and Israeli occupation forces breaking windows, storming the mosque, beating worshippers and putting them on the, on the ground and arresting them for absolutely no reason. This, of course, is not the only incident that took place last month. They also restricted entry of Palestinian Christians during Orthodox Easter from going into their church to celebrate holy fire. And we've seen several incidents before that in Al-Naqab, where they have been demolishing homes and attacking Palestinians, and Sheikh Jarrah, where they have been harassing Palestinians and have demolished the home of Al-Sarhiya family, and in multiple areas across all of historic Palestine, where we've seen Israeli aggression against Palestinians. And I didn't read anywhere saying that people who entered Al-Aqsa Mosque, actually raided Al-Aqsa Mosque, are all these right-wing settlers with Israeli yeah. police protection. That's not surprising, actually. You notice when you read multiple articles, uh, specifically in American news media, that they try to avoid putting Israel in a negative light. They don't want to show that Israel is actually an apartheid state, that it is actually committing crimes against humanity. They want to continue showing this facade of Israel, this great democracy that is allied with the United States, and we have similar values, et cetera, et cetera the reality on the ground is completely different. When they do actually cover settlers in any instant, it is usually when things have completely gone out of hand, an outcry has come out from, from human rights organizations. And you notice that media tends to separate settlers from the Israeli government. They try to equate them with right-wing groups in the United States as if they're an outlier, mm -hmm. as if it's just an extremist group. But the reality is there is no right or left in Israel. There's no extreme and non-extreme. It is one settler colonial state with one purpose, to erase the Palestinian and ethnically cleanse them. Laura, last year, 500 journalists wrote an op-ed asking the media to do a better job in providing context to what was happening then in Palestine, which was the major uprising mm -hmm. happening all over Palestine and in the diaspora. And from what I understand, nothing came out of it. So I was actually part of the group who wrote the statement last year. I wrote one of the first drafts with a group of journalists who came together to do this. Even then, there was a lot of fear from their own newsrooms on the reaction, uh, the use of certain words, etc. You know, how, how can we trust our main sources of news, which are the journalists, if they're essentially partnered with a regime that commits so many atrocities against civilians? The erasure of Palestinian voices delegitimizes mainstream media. It's a basic standard to uphold in journalism. Just challenge official sources, diversify quotes, center the people that you are covering. It's very easy to do. It's literally their job. But the issue is, and I've heard, is that newsrooms have their own policies that they uphold 
Honestly, they do not care. I've heard a story from a fellow journalist only last week when the events at Al-Aqsa were unfolding, where she had written an entire article covering the events, contextualizing the occupation, quoting multiple Palestinians talking about the situation, and her editor killed the piece because, quote unquote, the history. We have legal reasons not to publish this because of the history. It's a little absurd. And if you notice, actually, these policies aren't new. If you look at style books at each newsroom, at least the AP style book, which is used widely, the use of the word Palestine is forbidden. Any reference to humanity is forbidden. Um, so yes, it has not been heard, that outcry, but there has been efforts here and there to try to bring Palestinians on their platforms to speak. And unfortunately, that manifests in the opinion section most often. And they do that because Again, it's a form of protection for newsrooms. Oh, it's just an opinion, doesn't align with our edit editorial. We're not responsible for this. But you notice most of the time that Palestinians are always put in the opinion section, but the Israeli narrative is widely, widely used in reporting news, uh, reporting the Israeli narrative as fact when it is not the reality on the ground. Uh, so I think it's a very simple and basic question. Why is this happening? What's behind this lack of attention and lack of context when it comes to reporting on Palestine? There's a lot of fear on one hand from retaliation by newsrooms, because increasingly over the years, journalists have come out and spoken about inaccurate reporting, biased reporting. We have more than 500 people, 500 journalists signing a letter calling for fair reporting on Palestine. There's fear of retaliation because newsrooms don't care. This is not an important issue to them. To them, a journalist is replaceable. If they don't do their job, they can bring someone else. The other issue is that because of the ignorance on the Nakba, the ignorance on Palestinian history, the continuous practices that have been used by media and newsrooms to just not include Palestinians, not report on Palestine, it has sort of become a norm, which is very difficult to challenge. I think it's Islamophobic. I think it's anti-Palestinian. I think it's extremely ignorant. And one thing I do want to bring up is I, I firmly believe that any journalist should have a background in history. They should take a course in it, a training, a degree. It is impossible for you to go and report on an event, write up an article within two hours, and pretend it is fact when you are completely ignorant about the situation. And this is all under the guise of objectivity, but there's no objectivity when crimes are taking place. But it seems like when it comes to Palestine, the omission is deliberate. It's not that reporters who are covering Palestine don't understand history. They do yeah. know who's doing the bombing. Yes, yes, they do know. Even even last year in Gaza, Israel bombed press offices of mm -hmm. P and multiple other news yeah. organizations. Yeah, so so they do yeah. know. And I'm not saying it's one over the other. It is both. They are ignorant in the history and refuse to contextualize it. Because if you think about it as a journalist, when you have to produce something immediately, you just follow whatever your newsroom guide has given you, whatever talking points they want, whatever standard that they uphold. You are not interested in learning about the history. You're interested in filing a story. So that's one. The second one, the emission comes from the media organization itself. 
from the newsroom itself. Its style guide, its political view, its funding, its support. So yes, it, it is both. We have seen Palestinians writing op-eds and articles in major newspapers and challenging the dominant narrative in the media. For example, last May during the mass uprising in Palestine, Mohammed El Kord was interviewed repeatedly on major TV channels. Do you think there has been a shift in the public discourse? Yes, definitely. I don't think that it's a big shift, but I do think that it's a first step forward in in changing the way people understand Palestine in the United States. A lot of that is thanks to the Palestinians who took it upon themselves last year to be the voice of Palestine and talk about their experiences of displacement, their experiences of Israeli brutalization. And Mohammed Al-Kurd is one of them. And thankfully, he is one of them. A lot of his interviews went viral where he was challenging the reporters who were asking him questions that Mm. somehow blamed him for his family's attempted expulsion from their home in Sheikh Jarrah. So yes, there there is a shift. We are a long way going. And if you notice, this shift often manifests itself when there is a crisis, at least, that the media perceives it. So apparently we are only relevant when we fight back as Palestinians, when we defend ourselves. We are only relevant within a 12-hour news cycle when Palestine is a trend or hot for media outlets, when in reality we are facing the occupation every single day of our lives. So... Palestinians are out there and they're trying to change the narrative and people are listening. I've been interviewed on multiple radio platforms with multiple journalists that are more local to certain areas, local to communities that may not be even aware that this is happening in Palestine or might not care beforehand. But there are community members and community organizations that are in the media that are trying to bring our voices out there. And I think it's important to recognize You know, social media has been playing an important role in informing public opinion. And last year, I think, is a very good example when during the May mass uprisings, Palestinians used the digital space to bring attention to what was happening in Palestine. Videos, commentaries, journalist and activist Mona Al-Kord, who lives uh, in Sheikh Jarrah, which was under attack last year and still is, said, we feel social media is the only way left to get attention. Every post, tweet, video makes a difference. This is how we reach out to the masses of decent people and governments around the world. So can you talk about the significance of social media in how Palestinians disseminate information online? As mainstream outlets decline and demographics change and social media platforms become where everyone wants to be. And in reality, if you're looking at the polls, social media is where most people get their news from. It is an important tool and it's a tool that has worked that we have used as Palestinians, whether on Twitter, on Facebook, on Clubhouse, to mobilize and organize ourselves, to spread footage of what is happening to us in real time, footage that the media cannot cut or edit or frame, just raw footage that's out there that is showing the world who is the aggressor, who is the occupier, and who is the occupied. So yeah, I agree with Mona, it is completely important and organizations and activists and Palestinians continue 
to use social media. Now there is a big problem, however, and that is the problem of censorship and mm. censorship continues. So last year, many Palestinians reported their accounts being taken down, posts being flagged, being told that they're sharing violent images or that they're sharing something related to terrorism and that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it has been a huge concern and people called it out, including organizations like Hamle, which is uh, an organization that works for digital rights of Palestinians. And censorship does continue. Many organizations find their pages and many Palestinians find their pages shadow banned. We continue to get these warnings of sensitive content that pops up into, into our feeds. The algorithm is not working in our favor. And that is deliberate. And it has proven to be deliberate. And it has proven to be deliberate last year when a Facebook whistleblower came out to the Security Exchange Committee, gave a statement and leaked multiple, multiple documents of the many ways that Facebook censors people. And one of the documents was specific to how they address Palestinian on their platform. ABC reported on this, and you can read throughout the reporting of how multiple employees were raising questions. Why was this post flagged? I reviewed it. There's nothing wrong with it. And a lot of organizations also sent a letter to the oversight board at Facebook, which we must be very clear about, has former Israeli military officials on it. Amy Palmore. Yes. And I think there's also one more, but the name escapes me. But it is something that takes place. You have former Israeli officials, Israelis who served in the military, who have participated in the killing of Palestinians, who are on these boards of these big tech companies making the rules of what is allowed and what is not allowed. And because of a letter that was sent last year by multiple organizations, more than 40 organizations that are concerned with Palestinian rights, with Palestinian digital rights, Facebook stated that it is going to investigate the allegations of censorship against Palestinians. And it has hired an external party to undertake these investigations. And we're expected to see the results in in the summer, this summer. Uh, but I really doubt there's anything that's going to be in support of Palestinians because of the way that Facebook has operated in the past. I don't think they're going to out themselves as a dictatorship-like organization that chooses who's allowed to speak and who isn't. But from what I understand, Palestinians are still complaining about their posts and video clips being removed from Instagram, from Facebook. So this is still happening. Yes, this is still happening. It, ha it has never stopped. But as I said, the reason it was widely circulated in the media last year is because it was a moment when there was an onslaught on Gaza. There mm. was attacks that the media thought as relevant to report on. The abuse against Palestinians, the abuse against us never stops. So ever. exactly what is being removed? It's really interesting what's being removed because some of it doesn't even make sense. What's being removed sometimes is just a footage of the attacks on Al-Aqsa, for example, pictures that depict how a Palestinian victim, a funeral of a Palestinian victim that was killed at a checkpoint by Israeli military forces. Things that Other things that have been flagged, which is really interesting, is any mention of political organizations in Palestine, regardless of whether the tweet or the status is an opinion or not. I've experienced this with some organizations that I do work with, where sometimes 
we're just putting out an article that is informative. It is telling us the history about, of an organization, or it is promoting a book that talks about the history of a certain period in time, and it immediately gets flagged and removed from the page, and we get an error on Facebook that says that if you continue to post these terrorist-related content, we are going to shut down your content. It makes zero sense, because how is an article that is talking about a history of an event or that is reporting about an event, how is a picture that someone took of something that is happening on the ground that is real, how is that not worth looking at? How is that a violation of community standards? Are we not part of the community? So is it just Facebook and Instagram or Twitter also removes uh, Palestinian posts. We have seen some instances with Twitter and it has been reported where some tweets are flagged, where some, some accounts are suspended, but it is less severe than what we see on Facebook and Instagram. And I think it's because of the nature of the platforms are very different. The accessibility is very different. People tend to be more on Instagram and Facebook. It is easier to circulate footage there. So definitely, in, in my opinion, at least, I do believe that Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook and, and Instagram, is a little bit more stricter. But we do see these violations against Palestinian digital rights on Twitter as well. As you said earlier this year, a coalition of 25 organizations in Palestine and in the U.S. launched a campaign called Facebook. We need to talk, drawing attention to the need for pro-Palestine voices to be heard and not be censored. Before we end, would you like to add anything else? Yes, of course. Thank you. I just want to say that there is still a lot of work to be done to shift the narrative. It's important to remember that readers have the power, that viewers have the power. We are the ones who are giving the TV stations the ratings that they need to continue to operate. We are the ones who are paying subscriptions to the New York Times and the Washington Post to help them continue to operate. So readers can do a lot. They can petition, they can write letters to the editor, they can demand accurate coverage on Palestine. And the narrative is changing. Recent polls show that now almost 50% of people who support the Democratic Party in the U.S. are split between those who are defending Palestinian rights and those who are pro-Israeli apartheid. So this shift is very significant and we need to mention it. And the other thing to emphasize is, yes, there has been more op-eds and personal essays, but we are only granted space in the opinion section, which absolves newsrooms of any tangible responsibility to our stories. The style guides remain discriminatory. The coverage remains incomplete. So there's a lot that we can do as readers and subscribers because we have the power. We are the ones who own our stories. Laura Albas is a Palestinian-American journalist and translator. She's senior editor of Digital Strategy and Communications at the Institute for Palestine Studies. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. <laughs>